message this morning is in 1 Peter. Hi, Paul and Ruth, by the way. And uh, the title is this morning, Enduring uh, the Painful Trial. A better way to put it, if you're going to put it in just English, we may have to die for our faith. All right? So that's where we're going this morning. I tell you, you're very excited about that. So, um, you know, it's been an amazing week. I've said before that uh, the uh, hallmark of maturity is the ability to hold wisdom or joy and pain in your heart at the same time, right? And uh, our week has been like that. I mean, yesterday we had just, it was an incredible Norfew celebration party with Brooks and Amanda's wedding. I mean, and it, it was there and there was a place in the ceremony where Amanda gave her purity ring back to her dad with the vows intact. And it blew the place up. And I think the reason it blew the place up and everybody broke into applause and stuff was because everybody was going, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so few things in our world are like that anymore. And uh, also, when it came time to pray for the couple, uh, both sets of parents came up. So both sets of parents came up and prayed. And how often do you see that these days? So there was just some resonance there that was such a celebration. In the same hand, same week, you have the horrific, terrible shootings down in Dallas. And uh, and you have the killings in Minneapolis and the killings down in, is it Louisiana? Or I forget the second one. But just these atrocious where, you know, I often I, I, I'm i an Old Testament Bible hound. I love the Old Testament. And I often marveled at these stories where God would do something and he would have a small group like Gideon attack a large army. And then the army would turn on itself and kill each other. And you thought, well, how how could that happen? How but if you watch our country, that's what we've done. We started to turn on each other and started to kill each other. Nobody has to attack us from the outside. We'll rip it up from the inside. And I'm sure you felt that angst. To me, it feels very similar to 1968 and the National Democratic Convention. If you're nodding your head, you're old, all right, because you remember that. But that was a terrible, terrible time in our country. Black Panthers, Angela Davis, if you remember all that stuff. And it was. it has that same feel that somehow we're being attacked internally. And so let's uh, pray this morning before we move on to the message. Father, as we come, uh, our country's been, the fabric of it's getting torn. And uh, we recognize that and we are stunned by it and, and terrified by it and watching it, not sure what to do. And so we turn to you this morning. We're going to walk through what Peter leaves as kind of his uh, culmination points of uh, what he's been trying to say to that church that he wrote to and and he's talking about these things. And uh, Lord, as we do that, we would pray this morning, there are all kinds of families. There are wives without husbands. There are girlfriends without boyfriends. There are kids without dads. There are. There's just been a massive wake of destruction. And they now, for us, it'll be over in a week. For them, they will have a lifetime debris trail to try and walk through. And Lord, we would pray in the midst of that that you would use that extraordinary grace you use at times like this to lead those people to yourselves and to cover the extreme pain and fiery trial that they find themselves going through. Lord, and we'd ask for our leaders. I know I could criticize our leaders. The truth is I wouldn't know what to do and I would be just as paralyzed as they are and I, I pray for them and I'd ask that you would give our leaders knowledge to know what to do at a time such as this. And as we come to Peter, Lord, uh, we don't know what time we're in, and so I ask that you would be among us in your spirit to talk through these categories and uh, help us think it through. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. 
So 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 12. Grab your Bibles. It's also up on the screen. It reads like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Interesting, being a meddler is thrown in that list, right? right? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we're going to break that apart in these three segments. Let's look at the first part. Go back to that. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the point of this part right here is that it is Peter's culmination point. He's bringing together all the stuff he's talked about uh, previously. And he's crystallizing his emphasis. And the point is this. Whoever wants to follow Jesus is going to encounter fiery trials. Right? That's what he's telling the church. Yes, I know you're going through hard things, but whoever wants to follow Jesus is going to go through fiery trials. Now, when we talk about uh, fiery trials, if you look that word up, uh, fiery, the Greek is pyrosis. Uh, if you take the cysts out of there, you get pyro. Right? And we kind of know what that is because we just came through the 4th of July, right? And uh, half your neighborhoods had pyromaniacs in them, right? And the, it looked like the world was going off. And so everything was burning up. And so um, this, that's this word is fire. It means a, a, a fury or a fire. Um, what he's talking about. So literally what Peter's talking about is when someone, uh, something happens that burns your world up. Something that it feels like it's in flames and you're engulfed like that. The old saying, when they actually burned people at the stake, back in church history, if you've ever read some of church history, they called it the flames of affliction. Okay? Because it was how the flames afflicted you. And so Peter here is calling it a fiery trial. Now some of us have been through fiery trials. We've watched stuff burn up. We may have been through divorce. Uh, Maybe we lost our jobs unexpectedly. Uh, We may have gone through bankruptcy and saw our finances go up in flames. Um, The death of a loved one can be an incredibly intense and painful, fiery trial. Uh, It just looks like there's no way out the other side. Feels like, like I said, the whole world is engulfed. And if you've ever been burned, and I mean literally burned, like a curling iron or an iron or a hot muffler, you have some knowledge of what that experience feels like because that physical pain is very similar to that um, emotional pain. 
Uh, I remember when I was a kid and uh, my buddy and I, Greg Wilcox, were out playing and my mom wanted us to burn the garbage. So back in Wisconsin, you had the big 50-gallon burning drums, right? You dump stuff in, dump gas in, throw a match, whoop, right? And make a fire. And we used to use those big, remember those big old ancient aluminum tent poles, right? Those were our poles to stir the fire, right? And so Greg and I start wrestling on doing stuff. So I grab an aluminum pole and, you know, on guard, we're going to now three musketeers, like only we have two, and, you know, we're going to start sword slashing. Well, Greg grabs the tent pole out of the fire barrel, right? And I was under the illusion that aluminum doesn't get hot. And so as we swatted and he poked at me, I was going to grab his and then pull his tent pole out of his hand. And so I grabbed and went... And I watched the skin literally melt off my hand. I, like, you know, when your hand looks like an overcooked hot dog on the grill, that is not a good thing, right? And so I run in the house, water, ice cubes in the thing, and uh, it, it's a miracle my hand is, is good. Um, but it, I can tell you what that feels like, all right? And Peter's talking about going through that kind of trial, And this burning is specifically oriented to our faith. In other words, if you take a stance of faith in Jesus, if you say, I really believe he is who he is, I really believe that he died on the cross, I really believe he rose again for the dead, somewhere in there, there's going to be a fiery trial that tests that conviction, that tests that confession. And it is going to seem uh, pretty overwhelming when we go through it. If you've been through one of those, uh, you know how it just completely consumes your attention, your energy, your resources, your time. And Peter's admonition on this, I find, I would call it weird, right? He says, don't be surprised. And why I think that's strange is because when crisis happens to us, we're always surprised. Um, When people walk into my office and they're in crisis, they do not walk in and go, hey, Steve, glad I'm here. I want you to know I'm going through a fiery trial and um, I want you to know it's okay. I'm totally trusting the Lord. It's all good. And uh, I just wanted you to know I'm an example of faith that you could use for the rest of the congregation. So feel free to if you want. That is not how it goes in my office. You know how it goes in my office? Ah, I can't believe this. How could God let... And that's the guys. All right? We do not react to that well. We... We are caught terribly by surprise. Matter of fact, we're shocked. Like, how could this be happening to me? I'm the Lord's beloved. Are you kidding me? I I didn't have that in the equation. And so, actually, we're quite shocked. Especially here in the U.S. when it comes to our faith. Because um, suffering in and for Jesus' name, for the most part, I realize there's exceptions to this, But in the U.S., for the most part, uh, has not been part of the deal. All right? We may go through bumps and things like that, but very few of us have been seriously persecuted. I do know of people who have. I I do know of people who've been run out of careers for it. I do know of people who have uh, suffered physical beatings for it. I do know that. But by far and large, most of us have not experienced it. It's just not been part of the deal. Uh, most of the time when we talk about these kind of um, battles, we use it in a, a metamorphic sense, right? Uh, when we say pick up your cross daily, what that meant is we need to die to the things we wanted. 
So if I have to pick up my cross, that means I don't get the pickup truck I want. And that means I don't get the girlfriend I want. And that means I don't get the house I want. And that means I don't get the job I want. And right, we think of things we want and therefore then I don't get them. And so we equate that to picking up the cross. But you know, if you read through the New Testament, a lot of the language is very, very straight. That says literally, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to be a follower of Christ, you're going to encounter a fiery trial and it may take your life. Right? Anybody disagree with that? All over the New Testament, right? And that's what Peter's talking about here to the church. Most of us have not faced a fiery furnace uh, for our faith, like the imagery that's called up when we think of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know, who? You might know them better by their Babylonian names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, those guys. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in, in Daniel chapter 2. He has this dream, and God tells him about this great statue. So then later in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol out of that dream, makes a statue, and wants everybody to bow to it. And these three guys won't bow. And you can imagine the political pressure. It's on the plain of Dura, so you're out on a big, huge field. Everybody's there. The music kicks up. Everybody bows. And you look, and there's three guys standing out. Would that be rather conspicuous, you think? Not too many places to hide. Nebuchadnezzar is not a happy camper. It says he was full of rage. What do you do when a king becomes full of rage? There's not much. There's a lot of power there. It says he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than normal. As a matter of fact, it was so hot, the guys who threw those three in died from the heat of the flames. That's hot. Right? And in that particular story, they survived the flames. But there's a lot of other stories who've been thrown to the flames, uh, the martyrs of the early church, that their crown was to go to heaven, not to walk out of the flames and stay alive. And here's what I want to point out. We have not gone through that yet as a country, but there's no promise in the New Testament that says we won't. Right? If you have people tell you, hey, that will never happen to us, that won't happen because we're Americans and we're the apple of God's eye, there's no verse you can back that up with. All right? And so as we're looking at that, as we're thinking about that, um, I just want us to make sure that we are uh, aware of that. Uh, and if you take, actually the truth is far from that, just a brief survey of Jesus' words will show us as much. Look at what Jesus said. He said this, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. He says, if you run into that kind of opposition, why? Well, they didn't like me very much either. They still don't like me very much. And you're going to catch the flack. If you look at John 15, 20, remember what I told you. In other words, go over what we walk through. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In other words, you're going to follow my footsteps. You're going to follow me. I had to go through this. You probably will too. If you look at 1 John, he uses almost the same words as Peter. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Kind of the culmination passage of all this is found in Matthew 24, where it lists a whole bunch of things because they were asking Jesus, when's the end of time? And he was explaining some things to them. And then he said, and then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Why? Because they're getting squeezed. You ever been squeezed? 
Right? Go back to junior high. You ever have your buddy squeeze you? Right? Come on, do it. No, I'm not doing it. Yeah, you're going to do it. We're going to make you do it. No, I'm not going to. Yeah. Right? And they put the pressure on. Right? They squeeze you. And, and actually, you, you start feeling like the walls close. And then after a while, you buckle. And then, oh, why did I do that? And, you know, they just made fools out of you. And, and, but why did you buckle? It buckled because you felt the squeeze. The pressure was closing in. And so um, that's what Peter's talking about here. And uh, see you, Helena. Thanks for coming. All right? He's talking about at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. What happens? We start feeling the pressure. And what's the pressure? You stick to that. You walk with that. You confess that. We will kill you. We will take you out. We will take everything you've got and then we'll take you. And we'll just keep ratcheting the pressure till we break you. And it's intense. You know, and when it comes down to, you know, who gets thrown under the bus, if it's me or you, I'm going to throw you under the bus so I get saved, right? It's the old thing. Remember in the woods, there's two guys and a grizzly bear was charging them. And one guy starts putting his tennis shoes on and the guy goes, why are you putting your tennis shoes on? You can't outrun that bear. He says, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you, right? And there's a lot of that. You know, that's a joke we laugh at, but there's a lot of that in our culture of, you know, I'm sorry I had to throw you under the bus and I know it's really painful and I'm sorry, but I had to, I had to protect myself. And Jesus says in the last time when the thumbs or screws are put to it, when the pressure's on, we're going to just throw each other under the bus. But the ones who have anticipated it are going to go through the fiery trial. And the goal is to go through the fiery trial well. He says, At that time many will turn away from the faith, betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the question on the table this morning is this. Could that possibly happen to us? Could that happen in the U.S.? Right? Never has, but... Could it happen? Let me walk us through a scenario. Here's the scenario I'd like you to consider this morning. First of all, it's made fun of. Secondly, then, it's tolerated. Third, it becomes normal. Four, it gains momentum. Five, then it wins victory, both political and social. Six, then it redraws the lines. Seven, then it starts to close the net. And as it closes the net, then it starts to exert social pressure. Then it starts to exert financial pressure. Then it will exert political or governmental pressure. And then lastly, it ruthlessly crushes those opposed or standing against it. Do you think I'm talking about today? Well, it could be, but it may fit. But what I'm actually describing is pre-World War II Germany. If you think about it and those steps, it's amazing the sequence that happened historically in pre-World War II Germany. People said, how could the German people have been so dumb to let a person like Adolf Hitler become their leader? You know, when Adolf Hitler started out, he was an absolute buffoon. Matter of fact, nobody took him seriously. He was laughed out of government and they made cartoon pictures about him. You can still look him up. So if you go look up political cartoon pictures and you'll find some from the early years that absolutely ridiculed Adolf Hitler. Okay? And then 
But then they had to tolerate him. Because on this fluke deal, he won an election. Now he's suddenly part of the government. So now he's like your, co- your weird cousin, right, that you have to put up with because he's your cousin. So they had to tolerate him because he was actually in the political circle. And then it became normal. Uh, they were sure Hitler, if you listen to most historians, the German people were absolutely convinced that Hitler would not last between one or two years that he had no staying power, that his platform was so skewed and so off the charts that nobody would rally to his cause, right? But he became normal. He started uh, gaining influence and uh, started gaining presence and prestige. Then he began to gain momentum, all right? All of a sudden, he started making speeches and, and people started turning out by the thousands and people were like, what? Who's going to those things? Right? Have you ever sat on TV and going, who actually goes to those things? Right? Right? You ever done that? And the German people were doing the same thing. Like, who's, who is that actually showing up at those things? And then he not only gained momentum, but then he had a victory. Uh, if you read about Hitler's political victory where he gained the majority seat in the German Reichstag, which is the German government, uh, absolutely one of the most shocking victories. They, at that election, uh, thought that he would win less than 7% of the vote. And so they didn't even pay attention to him when the vote was actually taken. He had won the majority seats within the Reichstag. And so uh, now suddenly he had to be contended with because he was no longer the person being mocked at, but now he was the, the person who began to lead. Then he began to redraw the lines, right? They redrew the lines of what it meant to be German, what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be all these different things, what it meant to be the church even was one of their more clever ones. And then they began to close the net. Let's figure out where the net is. And they began to draw it in. In Germany, it was called coordinating. Let's coordinate everybody. And that meant we coordinate our language. We coordinate um, uh, our reading materials. Matter of fact, anything that wasn't... uh, Worthy of Germany was burned. Uh, you, you've probably read about the book burnings and that sort of thing. They were purging and purifying Germany. And, and so only what passed the official uh, test of the Führer and the Gestapo got cleared. And so they began to coordinate everybody and draw this net in. And then uh, they began to exert social pressure. We don't think you should. It started with we don't think you should shop at Jewish shops. And then it became, we don't want you to shop at Jewish shops. And then it became, you are no longer allowed to shop at Jewish shops. And each step of the way, it incrementally ratcheted up the pressure. And a whole while, they were keeping a great face to the rest of the world. In the meanwhile, Hitler was building Auschwitz and the camps, the death camps. Then they began to exert incredible political pressure. Uh, we know about the annexation of Austria. Like, isn't Austria happy we annexed them? Look, I've done the world a favor. That was the tone they took. And we know about Hitler invading Poland, and the world did nothing, right? And he began to exert incredible influence. You go, why in the world didn't they stop them? Because the German people were shocked. They could not believe this was happening in their country, and it was happening fast. Everything I'm talking about right here went from 1933 to 1939, six years. Okay, Six years. Although it took longer for Hitler in the political part, but the part where once he was elected, six years, 33 to 39. And it just kept happening, and they could never catch up. The church couldn't catch up. Hitler was a genius at splitting the church. 
and they could never agree on one platform. And so because they couldn't agree together, they all fell apart. And literally, you find all kinds of chaos within the church during that time. That's unlike the American church at all to you, right? And so because they couldn't agree together, they fell apart. And in that process then, Hitler began to ruthlessly crush anybody who opposed or standing against him. Hitler's rise to power follows this exact pattern. And the question is not, is it happening today? But I think rather the better question is, where are we in that sequence? Right? In those ten steps, where in that sequence are we actually as a country? That's one of the more difficult things as a pastor because there's been so many things that have gone through history and everybody else wolf and after a while nobody's listening anymore, right? Because we've yelled wolf too many times. And then finally when the wolf shows up, what happens? Nobody listens and everybody dies. It's a, it's a classic story. And the danger is of crying wolf too often or too much or too quick. But where are we in that sequence? And another question rises. If this were to happen or this happens to us, how would we respond to all of this? What should the response be to all this? Well, look at what Peter says. Peter says this, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you look at 1 Peter uh, 14, he says this, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. 1 Peter 4.16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, because let, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter says, Rejoice, be blessed, and glorify. Right? Now is that normally how we respond when something goes wrong? Right? No. Right? When you are on the freeway and someone cuts you off, do you say, oh, bless you? You may have the space that was allocated to me. It was mine in the first place, but I bless you. Right? No. Do we tend to bless? No, we tend to blow up. We tend to curse. It's amazing how much we curse as Christians. And we do it under our breath. Right? And we think in our head. And then one time pressure hits and it squirts our mouth and we say what? I didn't mean to say that. That's not true. We meant to say that for a long time. We just never thought it would come out of our mouth. Right? And so we tend to have a reaction where we don't respond well. If we're truly caught in a situation where we are being pressured because of the claims of Christ and our confession of Christ, what is our response to be? And Peter says the response is we're to rejoice. If people start putting the thumbs on, that's when we tell people how great Jesus is and what he's meant for us. The more the pressure, the more the rejoicing. Now stop and think about that for a second. Is that normally how it works? Okay, you're going on vacation. You've planned it to the nth degree. That's some of you. I don't do that. I just get in the car and go, all right? But you've planned it to the nth degree. You've got such high expectations. You get halfway there and the stupid car breaks down. When that happens, do you say, children, let's stop for a second. Let's praise the Lord. No, what do we get out mad, kick the car, flip the hood? Ah, it's wrecking our whole thing. Do we ever stop to think that in the sovereignty of God, that car may have broken down because down the road something more terrible was going to happen and God kept us from ever hitting that point? But this illustration I'm using this morning is a little different. God didn't stop the car. He let us hit the something terrible that's really going to happen. 
When that happens, can we still praise his name? Cutlass is a Christian group that my family listens to all the time. We listened to it yesterday, and they have a song. And it says, when I've lost it all, will my hand stay lifted? Okay? From the God who gives and takes away. You know, when I was uh, first a Christian, and I won't tell you the year it was, because if I tell you the year it was, you'll stop listening. All right? But it was uh, a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. All right? And I became a believer, and I was pumped, and I grew up in an era that was very similar to this in terms of the, the mentality within the church. And one of the reasons for that, a book had come out, and the book that came out was uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Right? And, and so people realized, wow, the end of the world's coming, and we're going to be persecuted for our faith. How are we going to respond? And I had just come out of a terrible life of sin and had been saved by the Lord, and I was, couldn't believe I was saved. I couldn't believe... I couldn't believe I was in a church. I'd walk in church going, wow, people really do this? This is amazing, right? And, uh, and they told me about uh, martyrs and the early martyrs of the church. And I thought, wow, okay. So if somebody puts a gun to my head, I go, yeah, let's rock this thing. Because I thought, this is incredible. I never thought I don't deserve to be in heaven, uh, saved, let alone be in heaven. And then they're going to give me a martyr's crown to boot. This is awesome, Right? And yeah, they looked at me just like you did. But I just had that many, I But I was 22 years old. I had nothing to lose, right? I didn't have anything. I was absolutely broke. I had, I had nothing to lose. Well, through the years, I've acquired some things. I've acquired some very precious things. I've acquired a wife, okay? And uh, a precious, precious treasure. Uh, matter of fact, yesterday was our anniversary, 22 years, okay? So very cool, yeah. What's really cool about that is we're married longer than some people know. That's what's exciting about it. Used to be, how long are you married? 27, 24, 2. You know, that just felt lame. So, um, but, and I've acquired some children, right? Love my kids. I'm so proud of my kids. And man, we were at the wedding day. I'm just watching. I'm just thrilled. And I'm like, this is awesome. I also acquired a house and I've acquired a car. Well, too many cars, all right? And I've acquired too many cell phones and I've acquired too many of a lot of stuff, right? But I've got a lot of stuff on through the course of the years. The question is, Steve, would you let somebody pull a gun to your head and die for your faith has become more complicated, right, than it was when I was 22 years old. Because now they cannot just get to me. They can get to the people I love. I don't care about the stuff. They can get to the people I love. And I'm vulnerable there, okay? I'm vulnerable there. And so are you. And they know how to squeeze and they know how to pressure. And so that has become a, a, a proposition I've had to rethink, not with a different answer, just with a different resolve. Does that make sense? And that's what Peter's talking about here. In spite of the fiery furnace, we must be absolutely resolved to rejoice, to bless, and to glory. You know, when you think of heaven, so often when you hear people talk about heaven, what do they talk about? Hey, I get to live forever. Hey, I get a mansion. Hey, I get a crown. Hey, I get to walk on the streets of gold, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, the reality is none of that stuff really matters. You know, actually, the only thing we're really promised is that when you get to heaven, we get Jesus. And let me tell you a, a, a bottom, a really important secret, okay? If you get Jesus, he's enough. Jesus is his own reward. You never talk, hear people talking about heaven. Hey, when I get to heaven, I just get to be with him. I just get to be in relationship with him. You know why? Because that's not enough for American Christians. We want him and the stuff, right? We want the Christian life and the stuff. 
And if God doesn't bless us with the stuff, then we punish him by being disobeying in sin so that then we leverage him and manipulate him into giving us their stuff. Have you noticed he's not impressed with our efforts? Have you noticed he's not moved by our whining? Okay, He's not going to let us leverage him over a barrel. What he says is, am I enough for you? Am I, am I the reward? And that's what pressure a fiery trial does. Uh, how a fiery trial works, the image here is of a smelter's furnace. So I have a friend named Tim Maple. He's a silversmith. And, uh, and when you give Tim gold or silver, what he does is he puts it in these kilns. And in the kilns, he heats it up and it um, liquefies the metal. And as the metal becomes liquid, what happens is this dross comes out. And the reason I went to Tim is I'm a uh, gold panner, gold miner, and I found enough gold that our wedding rings could be made out of the gold that uh, I used. So I brought it to a jeweler and said, could you make some rings out of this? And I handed him the bag of gold I had. He says, no, I can't. I said, why not? He says, because it's not the right kind of gold. I go, what do you mean the right kind of gold? It's gold. I mean, it's out of the hills. It's found. It's, why can't you use it? He says, Steve, it's, it's loaded with junk. It's got quartz in there. It's got sand in there. There's grit in there. And we can't make a ring out of it. You've got to take it to a refiner. Well, they charged big bucks. So I went to Tim and I said, hey, Tim, you think we could refine this? He goes, yeah, we could do that. Right? So Tim pulls out his blowtorch and he's got a, a bestest uh, little bowl here. And, and, and he sits there. And as you watch that, as the fire and it melted, all of a sudden, all this junk started coming out of it. And I had a big pile of gold. By the time he was done, I had this little pure button. I'm like, what happened to all my gold? And I realized it wasn't all gold. There was a lot of junk hidden within the gold that looked like gold that wasn't gold. And so to make a ring out of it, Tim had to refine it, smelt it, so that the heat would drive the impurities out and it would be pure and and ready for use for what it's supposed to be used for. That's the exact picture of why God allows fiery trials in our life because he wants to drive out the dross in our lives. Any of us got dross in our life? Any of us got a few things in there we know we should have let go of a long time ago? We got impurities, we got junk, we got attitude, we got, we got stuff we know should have broken a long time ago and we hang on to it. And we, we keep telling the Lord, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, get to it. Finally, God gets to a place, he goes, fine, I'll get to it. And when he gets to it, then it's called the refiner's fire. And it's designed to purify us, not because he hates us, because he wants to make us ready for the kingdom. We're not ready for the kingdom unless we're purified. Just like that gold can't be used for our rings, unless it had been purified, we aren't fit for the kingdom unless we're purified. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I.e., At this point, the stuff doesn't matter anymore. What matters is Jesus. I've been crucified with him. I've died to the stuff. I live in him. He lives in me. The life I live is no longer my own life. I now live the life for him because he loved me and he gave himself for me. That's who I live for. That's why I'm living, right? Now, that doesn't protect you from the fiery fire. That's where we've made the mistake in in American Christianity is we've said, oh, if I just do everything right, I will never hit the fiery trial. And what we don't have an equation for in our American way of thinking is that sometimes it's not our disobedience that leads us to the fiery trial, it's our obedience that leads us to the fiery trial. 
Have you ever gotten in a fiery trial because you've done something right, not something wrong? Yeah, and all through the service today, people are going, yeah, right? We don't have that in our equation. This verse here, Galatians 2.20, uh, is what I call a present tense mindset. In other words, this, I live in the present of this verse with what will be true in the future. I am being crucified in the present so that in the future I will be refined and I can be purified for the kingdom. Being crucified simply means I count all things lost that I may gain Christ. The point that's often missed is this. We will all, in some way or form, go through the refiner's fire. The lie in American Christianity is that you don't have to be wealthy, be rich, get everything you want, then take your go-to-heaven card, punch the ticket, you're in, and you never have to meet a difficult thing in your life. I want to tell you is a bald-faced lie. Whoever's selling that is lying to you, and if you buy that, you've been lied to. Okay? God may bless you richly. God may give you a lot of great stuff. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with stuff that gives you and blesses you. I, the stuff I have, I have because God gave it to me. Okay? And, uh, uh, but if we start to, dip, what we get in trouble with is we want Jesus and the stuff. And there comes a place where that, that doesn't work. The question is not, will I go through it? The question is, how will I come out once I go through it? In other words, how do I react once I'm caught in the fiery trial? And Peter says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, have you ever noticed it starts with God's people? You ever looked at the Old Testament? He always started with his people, right? I had never thought that was right. Go kill the other bad guys, right? You can start with me later. That's always been my kind of attitude. And God goes, no, you always, right? When he starts, by the way, this isn't the only verse that says this in the New Testament, right? That he starts with the church. God always starts with his, he always starts the refining process with his church first. And most of us don't have that, that uh, equation figured out. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, in other words, if we watch this happening, we start seeing this around the world. And by the way, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are experiencing this. Uh, when you read about Nigeria in Africa and you read about Boko Haram, understand that Boko Haram is coming into Christian villages and burning Christian churches and killing Christian families because they want to wipe Christianity off the face of the planet. And the stories of the orphans you hear are the ones who've learned to forgive, are the ones whose mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters were slaughtered right in front of them. That's a fiery trial. When you hear someone like that praise Jesus' name, it's a total different ballgame. Because that's not normal. That's not logical. That, that doesn't fit the equation we have. And it catches our attention. You know, the early Christians uh, in the era that Peter's talking about, when they watched how they died, when you, this is the era of the Colosseum where they'd bring people out into the center of the Colosseum and let loose wild animals and watch the wild animals rip the Christians in pieces. And the Christians were uh, singing praise as they were being torn apart. And it, there's reports of when that happened, entire crowds walked out without saying a word because something so powerful had just happened, they didn't know what hit. Uh, if you read the accounts of the early martyrs who were burned at the stake, they were forgiving the people who put them at the stake while they were being engulfed in flames and singing songs of praise to God. Right? 
What does that tell the world? It tells the world there's something radically different here. There is a living God, an eternal God, a sovereign God, a God who is present, who is involved in the lives of these people, and they, can no light it, they can't write it off anymore to they're just good church people. There's someone behind those people that we have not contended with, and now we're forced to contend with them because we cannot account for the way that person died. And it has to do with this idea of being able to praise and rejoice in the midst of the conflict. All right. Peter knew what it was like to face this kind of pressure. He faced it at the trial of Jesus. We've talked about this several times. This time, he's determined. He's anchored, and he's determined to hit it right. Now, Peter would soon die. I don't know if you know that, but after he wrote Second Peter, it wasn't long before he himself was crucified. And as legend has it, he asked, requested that he would be crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to die in the manner that his Lord had died in. And so history records that Peter was uh, crucified upside down, which is really gruesome because your guts run into your throat and out your mouth, right? It's a bad way to die. You choke on your own intestines. And uh, that's how Peter died. And in the midst of that, Peter said, rejoice in the midst of that. How could Peter do this? Because Peter knew he had blown it. At the trial, he had buckled. They squeezed him. What did he do? He turned into a little girl. I don't know him, little girl. Yes, you do. No! And he cursed and swore. Why? Because that's probably what Peter had practiced most of his life. He was a fisherman. You ever been down in Ballard? They're not singing hymns, folks. Okay? Right? You ever watched uh, The Most Dangerous Catch? They're not reading Scripture. Right? The words they use don't come out of the Bible. Right? Well, Jesus' name does, but they don't... They aren't using it in the right context, right? What you practice, you become good at. What's Peter saying? Don't be like me. Don't practice internally this one thing and then hope under pressure you react the right way. Learn to practice praising now with the pressures you have. What pressures do you currently face right now today that cause you to get all bunged up inside? That get you angry and upset and, and you get mad, you want to retaliate, you want to cuss. Learn to rejoice. Learn to thank God for it. Learn to turn it into a blessing. Learn to bring glory to God in that, not glory to yourself. It's not about you getting what you want. It's about are we making God look good, right? And if we practice that, when that kind of pressure comes, then we will react to what we've learned. We'll react to what we've practiced. And so what Peter's saying is this, look, don't expect that you can wait till the last second and then turn it all on and hit it. You ever had something in life where the Lord said, hey, you need to get to this, hey, you need to get to this, hey, and you said, yeah, yeah, I will, whether it's prayer or scripture or whatever, and, and then something hit, and you really needed it, and you couldn't recall it, you couldn't bring it to mind because you hadn't practiced it, right? Under pressure, you'll forget. You'll go to what, under crisis, we go back to what we learned. Most of us, what we learned is from our parents, and most of them, what they learned is from their parents, and so there's a generational coming down the tracks, train coming down the tracks, that we react that way. And we don't react according to praising God, but we react to the brokenness in the family generational pipe that's come along. So Peter says this. He's now wholly committed, submitted. He's truly counted all things a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, let me give a positive story. Can our culture be turned? And the answer is absolutely yes. 
God is not intimidated by the United States of America. I've got news for you. He's not bullied by it. He's not overwhelmed by it. He's not shaking in his boots going, oh, well, what do I do with the United States of America? They're so powerful. That's not, that's not, he's not in that at all. Right? Can he still turn things? Absolutely, yes. God's arm is not too short. His word is still a hammer that breaks the rock. And he, we got a lot of rockheads in our country, right? So that, that could work. He can bring revival. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the conditions we're experiencing right now in our country are the perfect seedbed for revival. Because a whole lot of people are asking the question, what the heck has happened to my country? What happened to the America I grew up in? What is going wrong here? So it's a perfect context for revival to happen. But the question this morning is, are we even praying for revival? A bigger question would be, are we even praying? Right? Jesus said, when I come back, will I find any faith? I don't know, in this verse here it says, uh, who suffer according to God's will that they would entrust their souls. I don't know how a person entrusts their soul unless they're praying. I really don't. I don't know how you do that. Prayer is not something to be talked about, but rather something to be entered into. You say, I don't know how to pray. Great start. You can do two-year-old prayer, you know. Hey, uh, Jesus, I don't know you really well. Matter of fact, I don't know how to talk to you. But they say I should, so this is about the best I got. I really need help, and I really need to do what you want me to do. Could you start to help me learn how to walk with you? That's a pretty good prayer. Right? When you talk to a two-year-old, how do they talk? I think, dad, it's marvelous. Does the dad go, that is not proper English? <laughs> no. Dad goes, man, that's my boy. Right? Okay? Dads become fluent in two-year-olds. Yeah, you ever watch mom's kid blabbers? Other kids go, what? Mom goes, oh, they want this. What? How do you translate that? Because they learn, they learn two-year-old, right? Our Father in Heaven can translate two-year-old prayers emotionally. A lot of us have been deeply damaged in life where, uh, you know, intellectually and age-wise, we're in our 30s and 40s and 50s, but emotionally we're like 12. This is we've been smashed. Right? God understands adolescence. He knows how to do that prayer. So therefore, let him entrust. Are we praying? And here's the point. If we won't pray now, maybe what God will have to do is put us in a prison cell. I'll bet you we pray then. But the question will be, will we be any good at it? And the question is, will we have the right tone when we do it? Will we just be in that jail cell coming and complaining, how could you do this to me? And all, and all those accusatory prayers, or will we go, you know what, Lord? Never thought I'd be here. Never thought I would, but you know what? This is a kick. I actually get a chance to represent you in the way I've read about the people from all through the ages. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. That's an amazing place to be. And that's what Peter's encouraging this church to be at that place because they're going through that southern. But my question is, you know, why does it take to get in a jail cell before we start to pray? Why not? Why wait that long? Why not today? Husbands, wives, I have begged, I have pleaded. You can see this semi-truck coming right down the tracks, right? You've heard this from me before. I have teased, I have exhorted us for the need for us as couples to pray together. How terrible would it be if we could put apart in a prison cell and then you no longer have a spouse to pray with? See, something that's the old paved paradise, you put in a parking lot, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Then all of a sudden you'll want to pray and they won't be there to pray with. Okay? God says, hey, that was always going to be good. Don't try to reach him in a flood. 
you better start praying before the flood hits because when the flood hits, it's too late. Pray now. And so I want to encourage this again. If we're going to change, if, if God's going to be at work in the culture, we need to be praying. And that means that, hey, maybe he can bring revival. And boy, let's hope he does. Let's hope. Wouldn't it be awesome, you know, just a, a Jesus revolution on steroids? Wouldn't that be phenomenal? But maybe he brings the fiery furnace to bring the revival. That's also in there. May we be the right kind of praying people that we respond right, that people would want to figure out what kind of God do those people have that they can be burned in the flames and still praise their God. You know, today would be a good day, good day to start to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. Many of us have walked a long time. It's not an issue of re-upping anything. It's an issue of clarity, right? Focus. Some of us, we haven't been really good at that. It's really good. Is Jesus enough? Is that my bedrock? Under pressure will I crack or under pressure will I praise? The world's going to find out regardless of how we answer today. They're going to find out because when we're squeezed, what's in us will come out. Let's pray. Father, as we think with this, it's a little scary. It's actually quite frightening. And uh, none of us are apt to this. Lord, our, our leaders don't know how to change things in our country. But we know you can. We know you do. We just don't like the part of the equation that we may have to go through the fiery furnace for you to accomplish what you have to. And I guess this morning, the wisest mentality would be, God, we entrust our souls to you no matter what you decide to do. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he had gone through some incredible fiery furnaces. Lord, may we be the same kind of people. Would you help us practice now what we need to do under pressure before it hits. We ask this in your name. Amen.